morning, church. Uh, it's good to be with you. It's good to see you this morning. Hey, I was wondering this week, and I wonder this morning, how many of you, how many of you can remember that thing that Dennis Perry used to always say? Do you not remember what Dennis said, or you don't remember Dennis? You guys don't know my youth pastor and what he used to always say to me. Okay, I didn't count on that. You remember Clint Locks, though, right? Everything Clint used to do and everything Clint used to say, my ninth grade English teacher taught me about faith, taught me about kindness. He was 27 years old. He was a rock climber and played in a rock band, but he taught me about gentleness. You remember Clint? You don't remember Clint. This is weird. You know Robert Shelton. Everybody knows Robert Shelton's, like his legacy. My first boss, he hired me when I was 15. You don't know, you don't know Robert. He taught me about servant leadership and about humility. You don't know Robert either. It's really strange. I can't stop thinking about them this week. They and there have been others like them that have just been on my mind all week long as I sit with the text. And that's because to you, maybe they are the faceless, nameless ones, but to me, they were an absolute godsend. And I could not imagine my life of faith without the impact that they made in my life. And I would imagine it doesn't take long for you to come up with a list of your own, right? There are probably people that you can think of right now who I don't know them. Maybe no one in the room knows them. And yet for you, life without them and the impact they had on your faith, like you just couldn't fathom of what that would be like. Nameless, faceless to me, but so much they matter to you. If you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, we've been looking at this like top-down, 30,000-foot view of the theme in the Bible of being exiles or of being in a place but not of a place. And we've been all over the Bible already. We've been in Genesis and Daniel and Jeremiah. We've been in Acts. And, and this week, I want to root us in Luke and the New Testament. And we're going to see how we relate to these stories because in a very real and profound sense, this world is not our home. And that's a teaching that is just all over the New Testament. You find it in John 17. Jesus is praying. It's praying for those who are his followers. And as he prays to his Father in heaven, he says, these are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And while I go away, they will remain here for God's purposes. We see in Romans 12, we're told, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world because you're not of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is your spiritual act of worship, to be in but not of this world. Colossians 1 says, we've been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Philippians 3 says, our citizenship really truly belongs in heaven and from it we await a savior to return for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 says, here... We have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. It's an inescapable teaching throughout the New Testament that this world is not our permanent residence. It's not our home. While we live here, we're not from here, and it's not where we will end up. But that doesn't mean that we don't care about what's happening in culture around us, and it doesn't mean that we don't care about what's happening in the lives of the people around us. What it does do is it creates in me a perspective through which I see all of my life and through which I see everything that I face in my life, and it creates a purpose for me in all of my days as long as I have them. So I want you to grab your Bible and look at Luke chapter 10 this morning. We'll be in Luke 10, because as I sat with this text... I could not stop thinking about Dennis and Clint 
and Robert and Donna and Courtney and Michael and just name after name who to you are nameless and faceless. But to me, I could not imagine my life without the impact they had in setting the, traje the trajectory of my faith and the trajectory of my ministry. And I couldn't stop thinking about them because when we open chapter 10, this is how it starts. It says, the Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them. And who are the 70 others? We don't know them. We don't know their names. We don't know if they were married or single or, or young or old. We don't know if any of them needed a note from Jesus to give to their boss about why they were going to miss work because he's sending them on a mission trip. We don't know what they said. We don't know exactly what they did. We don't know with whom they, they had influence and how they carried out that influence in people's lives. All we know here is that they were significant in God's unfolding plan of bringing his kindness and his healing and light into the world. And they're here, I think, in a beautiful way for us to see and know that while we don't know them and don't know their names, Jesus knows them. He knows their lives. He knows their names. He knows their baggage. He knows all of the things that they've been through and all of the things that they're going to go, go through. He knows them. He loves them. He draws near to them. He calls them to himself. He invests in them. He empowers them and he entrusts them with his critical work of bringing the gospel into the world. And I realize that, that when we look at the Bible and we, we read all of these stories and we hear all these names, there's a sense in which each of us, when we read it, we're trying to find ourselves in the text. Do you do that? Like you read this and you go, you know, I'm kind of like a Deborah. That's who I'm like. Have any of you been a Hebrew judge ever before? I don't know. I mean, you're not a Deborah, okay? <laughs> Maybe you share some of the qualities. You go, I'm like a David. You know, I'm a man after God's own heart, but I've never done the things that David did. And I've never sat in the seat that David sat in. So you think, well, I'm like a Hannah because, you know, I'm faithful and I'm, I'm dependent on God in prayer and that's kind of my life. And you go, well, I'm like a Hannah or I'm like a Paul because I'm courageous and I will plow through any wall. Or if you're like me, it's more like I'm like Peter because I get a lot of things wrong, but I'm really passionate. And so that kind of makes up for all the things I do wrong sometimes, right? And the reality is like, that none of those are me. I'm not in any of those people. I'm like these people, the 70 here. These are my people. They're the faceless, nameless ones to history, but to some people, to some people around them, they were vital and they were critical in them coming to know the kindness of God. And, and I think that's our story because none of us are really going to have names that go down in history. Maybe some of you will. You're going to invent something really cool and they'll write a book about you, but like not me. My name won't go down in history, but there are some people around me and there's some people that you work with some people that are in your neighborhood, some people that are in your school, and your name might not go ever any further than that, but they will never forget you because you're the one who brought the kindness and the grace and the truth of God close to them so that they could see Jesus, and you'll never be forgotten by them. We look at this, and, and I realize that all throughout the year, we've been talking about the same thing, and you know that. All year long, we've talked about how the church, it's not this building, it's not this time that we gather together, it's not an event on your calendar that you show up and something's presented to you, but the church is people who are called out around the gospel to orbit their lives around the gospel, to carry the gospel with us wherever we go, to carry it with our lips and with our lives, and we say, everyone, what? Everywhere, what? All the time. And we've been saying this all year long. What I want you to see is with all of the like, beautiful and 
powerful stories of all of these heroes of faith, that there's this story here where Jesus shows them a way, the faceless, nameless ones who are significant to him and significant to the gospel story and the kingdom of God as it's growing in this world. There's a manner in which Jesus taught them to walk, taught them to go, that I think has everything to do with how we live our lives today. So Luke chapter 10 is where we are, and it starts like this. Now after this... We pause, we say, well, after what? After Jesus had called the 12 disciples to himself, after they had begun to have just an inkling of understanding about who Jesus really is, and after Jesus had talked to them about the cost of being a disciple or the, the, what it would cost them to follow after him, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and every place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I'm going to go through the next several verses and there's some things that Jesus, several things that Jesus is going to say I think they mean a lot to people like us today. The first thing that he says is that there is really good work to be doing right now, and it's time for us to go get to work. That's what Jesus says. And I want you to notice the word laborers there. The word means those who do the work, not those who watch others do the work. Do you see the difference? Right? The harvest is plentiful, but those who do the work versus those who watch the work be done are few. And Jesus is telling these folks, the harvest is ripe and ready. There are people out there who are ready to hear and to receive the gospel. And the fact is, they may not realize it about themselves yet. They may not even know how ready they are to rest, to stop fighting with some pursuit in life to try to find meaning for their life. They may not even understand how ready they are to rest in the person of Jesus, but they're ripe and they're ready for it. But if they don't know it, how are we supposed to know, right? How are you supposed to know the people at your office or the people at your school, the people in your neighborhood who are ready to receive the gospel? Well, I think it, it looks like a lot of different things, and it may look different in different people. For some people, it, it, it comes out in curiosity. They're just, maybe they're not ready to accept the things of God, not yet, but they're awfully curious. And you've seen it. They're curious about God or they're curious just about spirituality, and something about that curiosity makes them ready to at least engage a conversation about the nature and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For some people, it's curiosity. I've seen for other people, it's distaste. They have a great distaste because of all of the pursuits that they've gone down that have not satisfied them. They have a great distaste for life and for all of the answers that they're being given about what life is all about. They're tired of it. They're world-weary, and what they need is a word of life, not a word that just leads them again, again, and again to nowhere. I think sometimes it comes out when there are people who have gone through some kind of grief, some kind of loss, and they're in a low moment in life, and they need a word of hope to lift them up. But I'd caution you to be careful because Christians are notorious for throwing a hallmark card of Christianity on top of someone who's going through a deep and dark season in life. That's why Proverbs 25 says, like one who removes a garment on a cold day or vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. It's a caution. When someone is low, 
They are in need of being lifted, but they're not in need of being danced upon, right? And all we have here is Jesus exposes to the 70 the need. He says, they're out there. They are. And maybe you have not believed that. Maybe you have not heard that. Maybe you have not met them yet. But they are out there. The harvest is plentiful and it's needing workers to engage. And that is the way that God always intended to bring healing and hope into the world. It's through his people. From Genesis 12, when he called Abraham and he said, you will be mine and you will be the father of a great nation and you will be blessed as a nation to bless all of the nations of the earth. It's God's plan. He'd use his people to bless other people. It was the same thing in Exodus 19 when he brings Israel out of slavery, 400 years in Egypt in slavery, before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, you're my people. I'm your God among all the nations of the earth. You're my prized possession, and I will make you unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, for by you and through you people will know God cares and loves for the people of the earth. Through you people will come to know me. We saw this in Daniel We saw this in the lesson of Daniel that we can't make a difference if we're not any different. Remember that from a couple of weeks ago? We saw this in Jeremiah when they're sitting in Babylon. Their children have been killed. They've been stripped from their homes. Their city has been burned. Their temple has been burned, trekked 700 miles across the Middle East. Now they're living as refugees in Babylon, and it would be easy for them to go, well, we're here because Babylon was tougher than us. Or we're here because Babylon had a better army or they were smarter and we were dumber. But God sends his word through Jeremiah and says, no, you're there because I have placed you there for my purposes. So build houses and plant gardens and raise families and seek the welfare, seek the shalom of the place in which I have sent you. Be in Babylon, but don't be of Babylon. And now Jesus is looking at these 70 that he's sending out, and he's sending them to engage the work of sharing the gospel. And I want you to see this. Notice as he says, it's time for you to get to work. He also says, it's time for you to pray. He says, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And notice, he makes the point, it's not our harvest, and we are not the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest, but he's sending us so that we could be a part of the amazing thing that he is doing so that we would get to experience it and see it up hand, uh, firsthand and up close, that we would know the goodness and the power of God in the midst of a broken world by being a part of his saving plan. But before they go out, before they just take off, he says, I don't want you to just leave and start working. I want you to seek the Lord because this is a thing that is too big for you. And like all things in life, life is too big for you. And so I don't want you just to get to work. I want you to work. But first, I want you to beseech the Lord for laborers. He's calling them to pray and not pray that they would have easier lives, or that they would have comforts as they travel. Lord, give me traveling mercies. How many times have we prayed that? But Lord, would you surround the lost and the broken with people who belong to you, who carry your truth, who carry your grace? Would you send more workers alongside me as we go out into the world and show them the kindness and the love and the truth of our God. Instead of praying for an easier life, he says, pray earnestly, beseech the Lord for workers. And the word beseech means, or it implies rather, that we should deeply and greatly, honestly desire it. 
Not just that we throw off a quick prayer before we get to business. Oh, God, would you do some good things? And amen. No, that deep down we would hunger and thirst that God would send laborers to harvest, that God would send workers to join with us in the work that he has sent us on, that we would deeply want that, and it would fill our prayers and our desires because, he says, there's good work to be done and it's time to get to work. It's the first thing he says. The second thing is in verse 3. He says, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And that just took a hard turn because if they were starting to get excited, like we've seen the 12, they're kind of cool. Now we're the 70, look at us. And then Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Like some of them are going, Oh, hang on. I was feeling pretty good about myself for a moment, but you're talking about lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs in the midst of wolves don't go out expecting to have comfort and luxury. They don't expect to go out and have just an easy time about things. Lambs that go out in the midst of wolves expect to lose their own lives, don't they? They expect harm. If you're a lamb and you're in the middle of a bunch of wolves, you go, well, the end is near, ain't it, right? And Jesus says to them, I've got an important role, and I'm sending you. I'm sending you, and it's my harvest. It's my work, and I'm sending you in power, and I'm sending you with my presence, but I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And I think this is where it begins to dawn on them that the call to follow Christ is a call that has a grander scale, longer timeline in mind than the few short days that we have on this earth. And it's not a call to ease in these days. It's not a call to comfort. It's not a call to popularity. It's not a call to acclaim or success in the world, way the, the world measures it. Luke 10, verse 3, asks us to reset our expectations. Do you see that? There's a resetting of expectations on the church for how our life would go. How does this reset our expectations about our life? Well, I think this is really important in, in 2023 American Christianity. Because we lived for so long in this bubble of moralism that we felt like we were a people of power and we were a people of popularity and we were at the center of culture and people would want to be like us. And yet the bubble burst and we realized that we're not. I think the reset is to reset our expectations that we're, if we're going to be not of this world but in this world, that we're not going to be the moral majority. And we're not going to be the people of power and we're not going to be the people that everyone goes, oh, well, look, my life is going to be patterned after theirs because they look so amazingly cool and they are what the cultures of the world esteem to be. But instead, we should expect to lay down our lives figuratively, maybe physically, because that's what it looks like when Jesus calls lambs to go in the midst of sheep. It's a call to lay down our expectations at the very least. The call to lay down some of our selfishness and our pride, even our lives, if it's required, in order to proclaim the gospel. And I think about Paul's line in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. It says, however, I consider my life now nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's a bold statement from a bold and courageous man, right? Of course, Paul could say that. But what gave Paul the power to say that is he already had the perspective that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the perspective on which his whole life is built. For me, 
to live because I know Jesus and he has rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into his light. Because of that, for me to live here and now is Christ. That means I live with Christ. I'm not alone. When the world tries to beat me down, I know that Christ is with me. When, when I feel like everyone is against me, I know that my king is for me. And every day that I live, I get to carry his truth and his power into a broken world. For me to live is Christ. But guess what? If I lay it all down, for me to die is gain. Because then I get Christ without conflict. Because then I get abundant life without brokenness. For me, to live is great. It's to live in Christ in the midst of a broken world. But for me to die is, oh, it's so much better. And Paul knows this. He sees the grand timeline of his life and that the days that he has here are nothing compared to what he has ahead in the promises of God over his life. And so he says, I count my life now as worth nothing to me. And I look at this line, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like lambs being sent in the midst of wolves. That should put a little perspective on our thoughts about being uncomfortable in conversation with somebody or being a little awkward with a guy at work or a girl in the neighborhood. should put that into to perspective because at, for most of us, at best, the greatest difficulty that we're going to face in sharing our faith and being a faithful witness is it's going to get awkward sometimes with somebody, right? When there really are, this isn't like stuff pastors say, there are brothers and sisters of ours around the world who are laying it all on the line for their witness. Their very lives are being laid out so that people would come to know Christ. And I found this even in spite of that, maybe because of that, they're even more willing to share what they have received in Jesus with others. And I don't know if it's because we have had it too easy for too long and we've been lulled into spiritual boredom so much so that we've become distracted by everything because we've become spiritually bored because we haven't really counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus both in its highs and its lows and ultimately in its great victory. And they did. But I love what David Platt said when he talks about verse 3. He said, this is what Jesus has called us to do in Luke 10, verse 3, to love wolves, to love the lost, to love the harvest so much that we will lay down our lives to go and proclaim the good news of his grace. It's not a statement of begrudgingly sharing faith in Jesus. It's a statement that out of abundance, it spills out of me. Because I have the love of Christ controlling me, which is what 2 Corinthians 5 would say. I, I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what Galatians 2.20 would say. That my love for the wolves, my love for the lost, and my love for the harvest that would come to know him is so great that it's nothing for me to lay out my life that they may come and know Jesus. To love the wolves in that way is pretty amazing. And Jesus says it's time to do it. It's time to get to work. And it's going to take a reset of our expectations about what our life may look like here and now. And then he says it's also going to require from us some balance of discipline and of faith. And this next verse, verse 4, looks a lot, it's going to seem familiar to you. I was reading it to Jamie this week, and she goes, didn't you just preach that a few weeks ago? And it's because it looks exactly like what Jesus said to the 12 disciples when he sent them out in twos in Mark 6. Here, here's verse 4. He says, carry no money belt with you. Remember this when he sent the disciples out? Carry no bag with you. That's a beggar's bag. Carry no extra shoes. Greet no one along the way. 
What Jesus is doing is he's beginning to do a work of building faith in them. He's sending them, and he's wanting them to go in faith that wherever God guides, God provides. Does that make sense? He's sending them. It's very clear that Jesus himself is sending them, and he wants them to believe wherever he guides, he provides. And I've had this, this kind of bug in my head lately that has been brought on even more this week because of this. How easy it is for me, and I think it is for a lot of us, to attempt to be faithful without being faith-filled. Can I sit on that for a second? Still working its way in my heart, and I'm trying to process this, and I'll probably talk about it a lot more next year. But being faithful versus being full of faith or faith-filled I think it's possible for me to try really hard to be a nice guy and to read my Bible and to love other people and to do good things and be the best me that I can be. And that's, that's not bad stuff. That's good stuff. Unless I'm doing only what I can do in my strength. And I'm attempting only the things that I already know that I'm going to be successful at. Or I'm, I'm running into problems that I already know the answer of how to handle them. You see the difference there? That it's possible for me to attempt to be faithful by just doing the right thing again and again without being faith-filled and really depending on the Lord, which would undermine the word faithful altogether. Hebrews 11 says that we we cannot please God. It's impossible to please God without having faith. Um, Going to Uganda in a week and a half, our team, several of our team are here, and as we're preparing... Um, they know that I love to prepare. That's my love language, right? And I meticulously go through every word of every teaching I'll give. I'll teach eight times over like four days, uh, four days in Uganda. And I go through every line and every word. I want to have it committed to mind and committed to heart. I go through every detail of every hour of the trip. I want to know where we're going to be. I drive them nuts. Where we're going to be and when, and when does it transition? And they remind me over and over again, you're on Africa time. So if we say 12 o'clock noon, it's going to be 4 o'clock p.m. I go, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and notate that. It's going to be 4 o'clock p.m., but 12 o'clock, 4 o'clock, right? That's the way that my mind and my, my life works. And yet, all of my favorite moments, every moment that I am, have most joy and delight in were moments that were unplanned. They were the moment where I was invited to give an impromptu sermon to a group of, of student pastors. It was a, a moment where we were visiting with an orphanage, and they said, would you give a word of encouragement to those who are living here? It, it's, it's when uh, the bishop says, hey, they want to do a question and answer session with you. I go, but I didn't prepare for a question and answer session. No, we can't do that. I say, no, we can do that, sure. And these pastors were not being nice. Like, it was gender issues and eschatology and, you know, politics and marriage and uh, spiritual warfare. They're throwing every fastball that they could throw at me. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my goodness, this is going to be wild. But the Holy Spirit just pours scripture after scripture out things that I didn't even know that were hidden in my heart. He brings them into light, and I get to lay them down in front of these pastors, and I go, what a great work the Lord has done today. With all of my desire to be faithfulness and preparation, it was the moments where I, I, I really just leaned into being faith-filled that absolutely changed 
my perspective and my heart. And if you know me, you know my love language is preparation. And that's the way I, I, I work. But I cannot let my plans to be faithful keep me from having faith. Can't let my plans to be faithful keep me from having faith in God's presence, in His power, and in Him doing things that I never would have believed even if I was told. Things that are greater than I could ever imagine. Things that are God-sized things that He desires to do in and through my life. And I look at this group of people that Jesus is standing in front of, and He tells them, I'm sending you like lambs in the midst of wolves, but I don't want you to be a Boy Scout. I don't want you to over-prepare. I'm sending you out, but I need you to trust that where I send you, I will take care of you. Where God guides, God provides. And then he adds this little line, and it's a little strange. He says, and greet no one on the way. And we go, that's just rude, right? Jesus is just rude. No, no. If we understand some of the customs of greeting someone along the way, that could mean a large interruption or a sidetrack along their journey. While they're being sent to one place, that could take them in another place where they just spend a lot of time doing small talk. <laughs> they spend a lot of time just you know, doing niceties with one another, and they never get back to the task that they've been sent for. And so Jesus says, look, you're going out. I'm sending you lambs in the midst of wolves, but as I do... I want you to have faith that where I send you, I have a plan and I will provide for you and don't get distracted along the way with niceties with people. Stay on task. Now look at verses five through nine. As you go, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. So stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't keep moving from house to house in this situation. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And I love this. I don't know if you love this yet. I hope you will in a minute. I love this. All this talk about peace here and then the lambs in the midst of wolves. We're not to be wolves when we go out. We're to be lambs. Does that sit on you? Please let it sit on you. Say, we're not wolves. We're lambs. Ready? We're not wolves. We're lambs. That's a big deal in our day that we need to learn. Jesus said it again in, in Matthew 10. It's recorded. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And I love this. He says, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent or as gentle as doves. There should be a gentleness and a sweetness about our lives and about our lips in the way that we engage with and interact with the world around us. Peace should mark our lives and our ministry. Peace, not fighting, not conflict, not trying to dominate people we disagree with, not bickering, not nitpicking, but peace should mark our lives in our ministry. Think about Jesus in that moment. Remember when he was asked uh, how to think about taxes. Should we pay taxes? And Jesus could have alienated a lot of people in this moment because there was a group around him who were pro-tax and a group around him who were anti-tax. Nothing ever changes, right? And you know what it's like when people start talking about politics and about money. People get weird. It escalates quickly. People get ugly. And pretty, pretty quickly, everyone looks really foolish. And what happens is we begin to look more like wolves than like sheep. Or, or 
what happens is we get drawn into some conversation and something in us changes and we begin to, instead of being shrewd as serpents and wise, uh, uh, shrewd, as, shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves, we flip it around and we go, I'm going to be shrewd as a dove and I'm going to be gentle as a serpent because we're talking about politics and money. But Jesus has asked, what about taxes? And what he does is beautiful because it's appropriate and it's gentle. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And you had to sit on it and think about it for a moment. What he's saying is, sure, if the law states that we're to give to Caesar taxes, what is that? Give him, give him his taxes. But the law of God says you belong to him. You are my people, my prized possession among all the nations of the earth. Your very life belongs to him. Give Caesar the money. Who cares? Give God your life. That's what Jesus says. And he says it in the most considerate and gentle way, in a way that stunned those who heard him. And I think that's being wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Or it's being, it's being a lamb without being gullible. It's being gentle but not dumb. Does that make sense? Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Peace should mark our manners and our speech, not fighting. And then he says that peace is the sign of fruitful mission. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. Verse 9, heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is just wisdom. Like This is just Jesus giving really good advice here. If you come and, and you come in peace and you come to declare the goodness of God and they receive you in peace, stay there. Do ministry there. Don't move on. Commune with them, eat with them, hang with them, invest with them. Like, like That's your labor. Your harvest there is right. They're ready. Share the gospel with them. And as you do so, verse 9, be very clear. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Why does he say that? Well, because clarity is kindness is why he says that. Because you don't want to come to this house and then leave this house and they just think, well, that sure was a nice fellow. How noble of them to come and, and, and declare peace over my home. What a great thing for them to do. No, you come to them and you don't say, well, I'm, it's not because I'm nice and noble that I'm here. I'm here because there's an amazing God. And he's done amazing things in my life. And I am amazed that he would want to use me to work out his amazing plan in the lives of other people. I am with you, but I am in absolute awe of the goodness of God. I'm in awe and I'm humbled that I could be here with you and just share with you the good things that God intends to do in your life too. They're to be kind and clear with people and not just say, well, I'm on a you know, random acts of kindness mission here. <laughs> I just came to be a nice guy because that's it's what we do, we people. I'm not going to tell you the name because I don't want to incite anger here as Christians. But, you know, I'm, I'm here. And we say, I'm here. I've been sent by a king from a kingdom and with a message. That God designed the world and everything in it. And he made a world with beauty and harmony and with unity. And he placed us in it to be his people in his place with full access to his presence. But when we turn our back on that and we said, I'm going to go my own way, we break the design. And everything that we try to do to make things right again, we know there's brokenness. Things don't feel right. And so we try everything to make it right, but it doesn't work. And so Jesus left the heavens. He left eternity and he entered time to do what we couldn't do to bring healing to what was broken and to restore a relationship with God that was broken, that we could enter back into a, a, a situation where we are God's people in God's place with full access to God's presence. 
I've come because a king sent me from a kingdom with a message. That's what Jesus tells the 70 to say. It's wise. It's good advice. And then he gives more good advice in verse 10 when he says, but whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, summarize, understand it's time to move on. Don't stay there and just start fighting with them. Don't try to beat them into submission with your Bible. It won't work. Jesus knows that they're going to be rejected in some places, their presence and their word. He says, don't stay and try to fight people until they submit to you. That's not the point. Move on and continue because the harvest is plentiful. You will get lost there. Go to the next city and declare peace over this house. These are his words to the the nameless and the faceless, the scent of God. It's his, his words to the known names about God's plan and about how God desires to use a bunch, of, a bunch of people like us. Don't get offended, a bunch of nobodies. I almost didn't say that, but then I, I thought you'd get mad, but then I thought, well, why not? Go for it, right? You're about to leave Uganda and they can't follow you there. <laughs> it's what he says to a bunch of nobodies like us, me included. He says, get to work, reset your expectations about what this life looks like. And some of that may come from looking at what the next life looks like and really sitting on that for a minute. It's going to require from you a balance of discipline and faith. And peace should define your life and your ministry, not fighting hearts. It's stories like these, and there's really a lot of them in the Bible. There really are if you read it carefully. Stories like these that remind us it's not about our names and our credentials that matter, but it's about the work that God has invited us into, which is a beautiful and amazing thing to be included in. And I don't want you to underestimate how a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation from you or just the boldness to have a simple witness into someone's life may be the very thing that God designed to use to bring in the harvest. It may be through you that someone comes saving faith in Jesus. I think you forgot it. I think I forget it. But the, the results aren't yours. Jesus just says, go, do the work in faithfulness, being faith-filled. In chapter 10, verse 1, this is the, maybe it's the best part for me. The Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them in pairs ahead of him, right? To every city and every place where he himself was going to come. He's sending them ahead of himself like John the Baptist before Jesus, right? They're saying, the kingdom has come near to you. He sends you and he sends me ahead of himself into people's lives to prepare the way in their minds and their hearts. Not that we would win anyone, but that we would be there a part of the process as he wins them into life. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing that we get to be a part of that? We plant, we sow. It's God who causes the growth. Have faith in that. Let's pray. God, we pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, and, and we just want to go straight to obey exactly what Jesus said to do here in Luke 10. In fact, we pray together right now earnestly for the sending out of more laborers into the harvest field right around us and the places that we work and live and play. 
for more people where we live, more people who are going out, not in their strength, but in yours, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and your judgment and your salvation. You called us to love wolves and to love the lost and to love the harvest so much that we'd lay our, our lives down. So God, please may it be so. Wherever we are in this world, help us to go and whatever risk it involves, whatever small risk or, or large level of risk, God, help us to be faithful today to proclaim the gospel, to make the good news of your love known. And God, we thank you for the nameless, faceless ones you sent before us. And for those who you sent to come near to us, that when we saw them, we might know you. And we pray that we would follow their example. And by your power, by your wisdom, because of your kindness, we pray that you would use us to draw others into your family still. In Jesus' name, amen.